0: This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the Widow Podcast. Today, I have the wonderful Marie Alessi with me coming to talk all the way from Australia, which is super, super exciting. It's it's early in the morning here in the UK and and into the evening with you, isn't it, Marie?
1: Yeah, um, it is. It's quite dark I've, outside already. <laughs> oh,
0: bless you. Um, so I've known Marie now how long have I how long has it been Marie is it last
1: summer we connected oh, I think probably about a year
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is wonderful because we have a very similar mission, but on completely mm. opposite sides of the world. And and a lot of people yeah. find me in Australia and New Zealand, and I always direct them to to Marie. And I think Marie does the and same. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when people find your
1: time zone doesn't work for me, please speak to Karen.
0: <laughs> I know it's it's impossible. It is. It does feel yeah. impossible. I do have a couple of ladies in my program that are in Australia and New Zealand. But, you know, that the times that they're obviously early risers normally. because It it's, is shocking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it'd be really good for you to come and have a chat and obviously spread the words that you are out there. Helping people in amazing yeah. ways. So you are yourself a widow, a mum, mm-hmm. and founder of Loving Life After Loss, which I just love. I've kind of, you know, <laughs> one of my strap lines is, is fall in love with life again. And so, so very similar. And I think it's, it's a lovely way of, you know, telling people a little bit about what you do, helping people find yeah. their their way after loss. So tell us, tell us a little bit about you, Marie,
1: and, and your story mm-hmm. and a little bit about Rob and what happened. Sure. So I was actually not that far from you because I'm originally from Austria. I was born in Vienna and moved to Australia in 2004. Uh following a really, really strong calling that I had for a very long time, I remember like on my 17th birthday, my dad asking me, what do you want for your birthday? And I'm like, I take it to Australia. I have no idea where that came from. I had it for a really, really long time. As, as far as I can remember, I had this urge to move to Australia. It wasn't just to see, to visit it. I had this urge to move to Australia. I cannot explain it. And I knew nothing about Australia, nothing. I even thought that Sydney was the was the capital. That's how little I knew about Australia. But then when I first came in ninety-seven, I had this sense of coming home after ages. I was really that, oh my God, this is where I belong. It took me another seven years. I finally moved there for good. And ten months later I met Rob. So I was like, oh, it was so meant to be, you know, I met this beautiful man ten months after moving for good. And another ten months later we were married. So if anybody would have told me that beforehand, you know, you are going to move to the other side of the world and get married 10 months later. I'm like, no way he'll say, you know, if he's Mr. Right, he'll still be Mr. Right in three to five years. But Rob proposed to me like five months into going out with me or actually even just meeting me, not even going out into meeting me five months later, he proposed to me and I was like, of course. I was like, wow. You know, that, that when you know, you know, obviously I obviously, all of a sudden knew what that meant. So it was really beautiful. And, um, we had our dream barefoot wedding on the beach. Like both of us had always dreamed about that, not knowing from each other that we wanted that as a wedding. We were both like, Oh my God, Oh my God, you're talking about my, my absolute dream wedding. And, uh, then two and four years later, we had Flynn and Jed, our two gorgeous boys. So we really did live that absolute romantic, beautiful, perfect life. And, um, even to all of our friends and family and co-workers we were all that couple you know they were like oh Robin Marie oh you know but it was just so beautiful to be that couple and um when I had my voice I moved out of advertising I worked in advertising for over a decade and I knew when when I started my family I want to leave that world it doesn't match with family and Uh, We had this plan, like, you know, a three- to five-year plan for me to stay home with the boys and then um, find something else. But something else found me, and that was coaching. I delved into the self-development world when the boys were about one and three and started my own business. And, uh, yeah, everything I focused on was mindset. So I was already in this mindset coaching industry for about seven years. And then one day Rob went on a business trip and never came home. So that was such a cut through, uh, fork in the road moment where um, Rob died from a brain aneurysm. There was no pre-warning. There was nothing that could have indicated it. He just collapsed in a shower and died. It was on the spot. And that, as you can imagine, was just so... I often describe Miss Moran as... You know when your favourite song is playing on the record player and all of a sudden the needle scratches over and the music stops and everything's silent? That's how it felt to me, that moment. I still remember it. It was deafening silence when I received that phone call and um, I had those super clinical words, I'm sorry to inform you that your husband is deceased in a hotel room in Perth this morning. And I was like, I still remember that moment being so surreal. There are no words to describe that. It was just so unexpected. Mm. I mean that day I already felt anxiety levels rising because he was supposed to call me in the morning and the phone call didn't come and then he went on and on and on and on. And then I called the hotel and I actually alarmed them. I said, look, my husband's staying with you and he was supposed to call me and please don't think I'm one of those freaked out wives stalking my husband but there's something not right. Can you please send somebody to his room? And the moment I said that, I had this split second of a vision of him collapsing in the shower. And I was like, I remember shaking my head thinking, don't go there, Marie, don't drive yourself crazy. But I couldn't help but say it out loud. So I said to them, and can you please check in the shower? I thought, they must think I'm completely nuts, you know. But that's where they found him. That's exactly how it happened. I was like, wow. Wow. We were so connected. It was just, yeah, and... Oh, that was the beginning of a completely new life, a new world for us, as you can imagine. So how old were your boys then? Because that was
0: in 2018, wasn't ten it? Ten and eight. Ten yeah, and eight. Ten so and eight. you then yeah. had to tell
1: the boys as well. Yeah, they were downstairs sitting on the couch waiting for me to take them to have keto training. They did martial arts back then and they were all redressed in their uniform and and you know, I've been doing that whole one more phone call, one more phone call. I was going mental at that stage. I was really my anxiety levels were so high because I knew something had happened, but I didn't expect that, you know. And so I was trying to play it all cool with them because I didn't want to alarm them or scare them, not knowing what was going on. And then I had this three-second moment walking downstairs knowing. I had to share that with them and no idea how, you know, that there is no sugarcoating a message like your dad just passed. That's you just gotta say it straight out. And that was really I think it was the hardest thing I ever had to do my entire life. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's um knowing that you are telling your children something that's you know, is yeah. is going to change their lives in such a profound way. Yeah. Is is not easy to do. Who did you First call for you for
1: help. I've never been asked this question. Far out. But I did, sorry, I did call somebody to come and sit with me, uh, my back then closest friend, and I said to her, I can't get hold of Rob, there's something going on. And she came and sat with me and she was actually on the phone calling the hospital in Perth. Just like, let's just call all the hospitals. Somebody must know something, you know, if you don't hear from him. So she was on the phone to the first hospital of her list and she was just, I still remember that weird moment, that surreal moment. She was just spelling our surname. She was just A-L-E and I was just doing that to her and she looked at me and she knew to hang up. And that's while I was getting, while she was spelling my surname, I was getting the phone call and the news that my husband had passed. So... I had somebody with me, yeah, but I never thought about calling anyone, even though it was just uh, in that moment I had her with me and she said, uh, I'll take the boys. And I said to her, no way, I I need to take them with me. They just lost their dad. Do you think I'll leave them behind now? There's no way, you know. I I knew she meant well, but I knew that I had to take them with me. And the same thing the next morning. So we drove to Rob's mum and dad. To share the news because I thought there's no way I want them to find out over the phone. I have to tell them in person, you know. So first I sat with the voice. And there was that shock moan, the screaming, the crying, the all of that, the hugging, the just being in the moment. And then I have no idea, I can't tell you how long it took, maybe half an hour. I don't know. And then I said to them, we need to go and see Nana and nana We need to pack up and go. And they were like, okay, they were just so in functioning mode with me. And we drove and on the way I called his oldest brother first and my mom, cause she had already booked her flight to come out to Australia for my little one's first Holy communion. So that was all very bizarre timing. Um, so she arrived 10 days later, but uh, yeah. And then I called Rob's sister and then I drove there to all his parents. And all of a sudden all the family started coming in and I was sitting in my numbness and, we slept the night there and the next morning we packed our stuff and went to Perth to identify Rob's body. So there was this you know, I think I, I've just gone into functioning mode for quite a few weeks after that happened for at least the two, three weeks leading up to the funeral and all that. And then in the same week of the funeral, we had Jets Holy Communion on the same in the same week. Wednesday funeral, Sunday Holy Communion and and after that I broke down. I just collapsed. It was just nervous breakdown. I had this nervous breakdown, like just falling apart in the kitchen. I started with one sentence that burst out of me where I was like, I just need peace and quiet. And I was like, it was like this valve opening and I couldn't close it anymore. I started saying that sentence louder and louder and louder until I screamed it on top of my lungs. I still remember that. And somehow I found myself on the bottom of the floor, whacking kitchen carpet, screaming that sentence over and over again. I just need peace and quiet. And then everything was silent again. You know, this complete silence, a real moment where my mind was spinning and going like, Oh, the voice. They're upstairs. They heard it. You know, I knew I had to go upstairs and talk to them about what happened. I needed to snap back into my body. I was just, an out-of-body experience, primal, as. And in my mind, I was just thinking the neighbours are going to call police or ambulance are going to take me away from my kids. And it was crazy that day. But it was my starting point of, I think I need to go and see someone. And I did. The week after, I started with a positive psychologist, and I worked with her for about four months, and it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Best decision I've ever made.
0: You say that that was a, a positive psychologist. Yeah. So how does that differ then from
1: a psychologist? Yeah, I think the simplest way to explain it without going to, into too much technical uh, terms, et cetera, is when you work with a psychologist, they usually work with you to get you from a, from a negative space into back into neutral. And a positive psychologist works with you to get you back into the positive. So if you do have a bad day, you could still go from an A to a 10, uh, from an A to a 2, uh, but, you know, from a zero space, there is only the negative to go to when you have a bad day. So that's very simplified, but uh, there is a slight difference in the positive psychologist that I always love. So I always had her as my uh, backup when I had clients come in that were just beyond the coaching experience. They really needed a psychologist to work with. So I had her on my call list, but I never really met her until that day. I never thought that I would call her for me one day. You know, it's
0: amazing actually because I, I I I use the term sort of positively grieving a lot, yeah. um, and you know, finding a more positive way through your grief. Mm. And I can see when I say it, there's there's a there's a, a jarring of like, how can you put <laughs> the two words positive and grief together? And it was really interesting that you said that about, you know, positive psychology. I really believe in it. I think it's an incredible thing, but it's a very hard word for people to hear to work with or alongside when they're in a really hot, because we have a notion, don't we, that positive means we're happy and we're at beat all the time yeah. and then we're doing okay. And we, we never moan and we never have bad days. and it it is, it doesn't mean that, you know, it just means that you have a, an inner desire to feel better. Yeah. To, to find your way through something in a more positive way, in a nurturing way, in a kind way. I mean, that's how I see
1: it. 100% I agree with you, Karen. Yeah. It's just that we're so trained to not expect that in grief, you know, and that positive psychology is actually a real turn to something that I made up. There's actually, there's also a slightly different training to become a positive psychologist. So you can actually look it up when you want to study. You can study clinical psychiatrists, psychologists, you can the positive psychologist, so they're a different sort of section of it, you know. So the background is all very similar, but then they go into different directions and how they deal with it. And I, I just love that approach very much.
0: Do you think your previous coaching experience and knowledge and, and your mindsets mm-hmm. helped you navigate your grief in a more positive way that you were... 100%. So how how do you think when you've worked with people that maybe haven't had that mm. um, versus people that have? How do you see the 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 nuances? I suppose the differences in in how they approach
1: it, and for you, it is so easy for me to spot and feel—I should actually say—feel the difference more than anything because of who I was before and who I was after that that period of becoming a coach because. Becoming a coach uh, is really, it has such an impact on your own life because naturally you start uh, cleaning out the cobwebs, you know, from an emotional perspective. You start dealing with unhealed childhood trauma. You start dealing with, um, you know, all these negative mindsets or, or we call it the limiting beliefs. It's such a coaching jargon to use that. But, you know, we start dealing with all of that from our own perspective uh, on our own life. And 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 I guess you can relate to that, Karen. When you get clients in and they come with something that you haven't healed, you are very likely to then look at that yourself whenever there's something that you haven't looked at or that might trigger something within you. we are like, oh, good reminder, I need to look at that too. So that it's that constant evolving with your grief, with everything that you teach. And for me, there was this absolute difference in how I dealt with grief before the training and after. And for me, my first very significant loss, I had losses before then, uh, like my grandmother passed in my house, in our house when I was 12. And I saw her for the first time, I saw actually a dead body, uh, maybe even before, but it doesn't really matter. I don't want to get sidetracked with that. But the first really significant and deep loss for me was my dad when I was 20. I was very, very close to him. And that really pulled the rug underneath my feet for over a year. I remember I was just falling apart. I had nothing. I had no training in mindset. I had done no therapy at that stage. And about a year later, when I was around the 21, 21 and a half mark, I got handed a book by a friend of mine that triggered me to go like, there's stuff to look at. There's so much stuff to look at. It was really like opening a can of worms and Uh, That resulted in 10 years of therapy on and off. I would go half a year, then have like a year, a year and a half break, and then another half a year. And I tried out a lot of different modalities and a lot of different ways to look at it. And the one thing that I've learned, and I've actually just learned that consciously now through Rob's passing, is that adversity often re triggers unhealed wounds in your childhood. And you can see that as a, Double whammy, my goodness! Now I've got that to deal with as well. Or you can deal with it like a—I like to call it—a hidden gift in adversity. And you go like, "Oh, beautiful! There's something else that I can embrace that I can heal." You can see things like that as an opportunity to heal, or you can see as another stumbling block. And that in itself is already such a—you know—it's the same thing. It's just your perspective is very different, and that's the base to everything I do: shifting your perspective into finding the gifts and seeing opportunity in all of that.
0: Love that. I think that's so powerful, isn't it? And it's definitely something, you know, I try and teach people, you know, that I work with in my program all the time is is recognising how you are viewing something how you, you know you are creating a story around it the meaning that you're attaching to it and your perspective and is there another way and because it's so yeah. powerful isn't it Marie that absolute the words that we use the way we view a situation how we perceive it how we choose to use that as a mm. a, a, a learning as 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 growth as Healing, um, and it, but it's again, it's a bit like the, the term positivity, isn't it? When I, you know, talk to people in my program about well, what, what's the opportunity in this situation that you find yourself in? Because there is always opportunity for learning, for growth, for healing, for understanding, and and creating awareness around you and, and what you're doing. Everything's a, a, a sign, a signal, information. Um, But again, it's so hard for us. I found it really hard when I went, you know, I wasn't a coach before Simon died. I was a midwife and
1: I I didn't Mm, know anything about coaching. I didn't know that about you. (laughs) (laughs) I ran happy birthing classes before Rob died. So isn't that incredible? There's another parallel that we have. I love it. That's yeah. so cool. Oh, how weird.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um so I you know when I didn't have and when I discovered that the the coaching world and and you know learning about limiting beliefs and growth mindset and and all all of those those things it just beautiful things. Beautiful <laughs> things. And and they continue to be beautiful things. I am you know, you don't get to a point where you've discovered everything, do you? You keep learning, you nice. keep
1: growing, you keep healing. And the more you learn, the more you like, you open up to everything. It's just, yeah, it's such an incredible upward spiral. So when you are talking to to, to people, we'll, we'll, we'll talk
0: a bit about sort of what you do in a minute. Mm. But when you are sharing this with the people that you work with, do you do you sometimes feel a, a resistance as well in terms of you know challenging people a little bit in in how they view something
1: is is there is there a resistance there? I used to I have to admit at the beginning, um, but it was more like a, a little bit of the fear of um, their vulnerability and uh, you know, just maybe oh, maybe that doesn't sit right with the person and I could hurt them or offend them. And and then the more I let go of that and really stepped into where I wanted them to be, where I wanted to guide them, where I wanted to take them with me, the more I claimed that, the more people were like, oh, my God, thank goodness there's somebody who feels that too. And I was like, wow. So it's my own fear of, oh, I could offend someone, oh, I could maybe or maybe that could hurt them. Once I dropped that fear and really stepped into that leadership role, if you want to call it that, the more people went like, oh, my God, thank you for doing that. And I remember a couple of moments that were huge step-ups for me, really claiming and i was nervous about it and i was like i cannot possibly share this and i'm going to share one example i was that was a really really big one there is a piece that you might have come across as well because it was a piece written and i cannot remember the author cuz the surname was such a complicated one um and she has written a piece about widowhood widowhood is this and that widowhood is this and that widowhood is this and that and i remember when somebody shared that in my movement i read through it and automatically because when you do the work you automatically go into you have your filters how you would reframe things how you would say things differently so I read the whole thing with my loving love after loss filter on it and I started writing it out with that and I was like, I'm going to rewrite that piece into my language, you know, because language, as we said before, and you said that so nicely, it is so powerful. The language that we're using in grief in particular, in general already, but in grief in particular, it's so powerful. Um, so I started rewriting that and I remember I got really nervous about posting it and I posted it underneath the post saying like, I can't help but having my filter on when I read this and this is my version of it. And then all of a sudden, within an hour, I had 20, 30 comments on that going like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Oh, my God, this is amazing. And people were thanking me left, right and center. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe people are actually liking this. I was so worried that I could offend people. How could you say it so simple and this? And I'm like, well, reframing it is simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is simple. You know, the actual theory of it, we all well, we know, is simple. The doing it is not easy. That's the, that's the part we have to learn. So I then went and shared it on LinkedIn and then I went and shared it on my newsletter and I shared that piece all over the place and within a day or two, I had hundreds of comments going like, this is so brilliant. We need to talk about this more often and this is so, I've never heard anybody say it. I'm like, and this is where I realized people are really craving healing, but they haven't learned to be allowed that. And this is the part in the grief that I think you and I, Karen, we're both fighting for that. We both uh, in this advocacy of you are allowed to heal. We all have this real, this real urge, this real wanting to heal within us. But we haven't learned to allow to live that and to allow healing in, and that's where you and I and a lot of other people come into to create that change, to offer that path to healing because it is possible.
0: Absolutely. That's so beautiful, Marie. And you're right. We do struggle to give ourselves permission to strive for a life that can feel good again, where we can find some peace, some some contentment, some balance, even joy and fun and love and laughter. And you, oh you know, <laughs> and, and we're allowed that, and and yeah. we we can have it as well. I think it's difficult for people, and the reason they block themselves from that is they make it mean something it doesn't mean. And often yeah. that story is, and I know you know this, that if I do that, if I go through that process of finding my way through this and loving life again, Does that mean I no longer love my person? Does that mean I will no longer grieve them? Does that mean I'm being disloyal? Or disrespect them? Yeah. 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 And we place these meanings on it that simply aren't true. And society Mm. has created this belief system that grief just looks like sadness and pain and tears and heartache and misery and loneliness. And it does, doesn't it? Of course it does. We know that. But it also looks like growth and opportunity and learning and understanding and connection and joy and love and laughter. And yeah. it, it all lives yeah. side by side, doesn't it? They, they,
1: they coexist. but We can't see that. It's so interesting. I love that you bring that up, Karen, because I often say, you know, before or past, my life was mainly joy, but we all have good and bad days, Always. And nobody would ever question that. Nobody would find it abnormal that you have bad days between your good days. But when you flip it around and you look at the other side of grief and then you have lost the person and then there is grief and then all of a sudden people don't do that for the sadness. Why is it not possible to have happiness and sadness when it's possible to have sadness and happiness? They always coexist. They are always there simultaneously. They are always there, both of them. It just depends on what you give more focus to. And we all know that. What we focus on is what we see all the time and we can practice that. Even in grief, we can practice to focus on joy, on happiness, on love, whatever that is that you want to attract in your life or that you're missing so much in your life because we're missing that. It's, it's just, yeah, I, I love that you say that because we really do need to we need more advocacy around that. I really want to challenge that narrative of grief. It's uh, it's incredible.
0: It is. It is. And I and you know the way you kind of flipped it is you, you know it's a really it's an aha moment, isn't it? It's like oh mm. God, yeah, actually I was happy, but I had bad days, and and now I'm sad. I've lost my person, but I can have you know flip yeah. it. Look at the the reverse of it, and and kind of go. It's normal. It's natural. We cannot sit in sadness permanently. And also we yeah. can't expect ourselves we to We can, candy. but it's not fun. <laughs> no, it's not. We, you're right, we can, absolutely. And, and
1: <laughs> but it's really not
0: fun. <laughs> so tell me then, Marie, because I know after you, you lost Rob, um, you did something quite extraordinary with your two boys, didn't you?
1: Yes. So... I did two quite extraordinary things, actually, uh, straight after Rob passed or very shortly after. Um, four months after, I remember sitting in the office of my positive psychologist, the beautiful Emily, and talking about exactly what we just started about, this expectation and what people feel like they expect of you, how to grieve and how grief is supposed to look like in your life. And that it really stressed me out and that there's so much that people expect of me and then they're really puzzled when I'm joyful or happy and they're like, you know, she's not grieving properly. I just still in denial and all of that stuff. And I'm like, oh, there is no denial. Wrong, wrong. Anyway, different story. And she looked at me and said, so what does grief mean to you, Marie? And to my surprise, the first word that came up was empowerment. And I said it to her and I said, that is really bizarre. That word just came up for me when you asked me that. i said, like, that's interesting. You talk about that. And I did. And I said, it's really amazing because I felt so carried and looked after and guided after Rob passed away. I I felt there was never a, what do I do next? Where do I go? What do I do with that? I felt there was always an answer. There was always, I'm, I'm absolutely certain it was Rob guiding me on that journey. You know, that's my belief anyway. And mm. I did not realise how empowered I felt, how much strength I felt through the process till she asked me that. And it literally felt to me that when Rob passed as if he had poured all his strength into me. It's like, Yeah, I don't need it anymore, you can have it, you know. It's like <laughs> And uh, I had this very, very strong sense for the first time when I stood on stage holding the eulogy, talking to like 500 plus people in the audience for the first time in my life that I spoke to such a big audience and I felt so guided. I felt so held. I felt so much love and I felt so confident and so much joy and love in my heart. I felt him standing right next to me. So that was the moment where I looked at her and I said, I think I need to write a book about this. And she said, I think it would be great. And a month later, I had written and published a book, Loving Love After Loss. I had shared my story four months after Rob passed. I had published a book. And that to me, looking back now, I'm thinking, I can't believe I've written and published a book four months after my husband died, you know. But I had this urge to share with the world who Rob was and how amazing he was, and I wanted to share the story as a love legacy for him and as a story to read for the boys one day when they're old enough, but also to share a bit of love and happiness and joy and hope and all of that into the world. What I didn't expect was that the book ranked in the top 100 of Australian bestsellers, so I was absolutely blown away. I was so blown away by that. And then three weeks later, we were on the plane and I talked to Well the boys traveling around the world for two months. So I had this whirlwind of writing a book, publishing it, packing my bags, and then all of a sudden I sat in a Maldives going like, what on earth just happened? You know, it was just this coming down, sitting in this absolute paradise and just, you know, I think it was the yes. first real conscious break and trying to catch up with everything that had happened in our lives emotionally. You know, it was really that it was such a good break for us traveling around the world
0: it's amazing both things are amazing to write a book in that Mm. space of time when you're grieving I could barely string a sentence together so (laughs) like writing a book (laughs) is like properly impressive Marie I think fair play to you and like you say what a beautiful gift to give the world and your boys and Mm. and to write down Rob's legacy and and allow him to to live on in Mm. in something you know that's a beautiful thing to do now I've been talking about this in in some of my groups recently. This whole yeah. don't don't make any big decisions in the first year, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. it's a big thing, isn't it? In grief, <laughs> now, I'm not. I mean, they're two pretty big decisions. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to take my two young boys, and we are going to go on a trip around the world. I'm going to leave home. I'm going to leave everything I know, which often becomes our our safety, our sanctuary, our safe space, um, because the world feels big and scary, and we feel vulnerable and exposed in it and you decided to to go for it and and do something really very brave and courageous what was it that made you do that what did you get from it and I'm assuming you feel like it was the right thing for, for you and the boys and oh, it yeah. gave
1: you... 100%. Mm. It was such a good decision for us. Like even the boys, we still talk about it nowadays, you know. It was really... So the decision actually came from Rob and I together and it was something that we had planned to do as a family of four to travel around the world and to take the boys out of school for an entire year and homeschool them and we had started an online business that started to become like really quite lucrative and uh, we were like let's focus on building that you know we've got half a year and then let's just take off and work from you know the perfect laptop lifestyle like everybody dreams of and we had planned that and uh, i still till this day i still haven't taken it down i've got the entire itinerary i cut out all the places where i wanted to go and put it all over our four-door wardrobe and it's still there. I still have all the images of the places we wanted to travel to. We had the itinerary standing we wanted to go through Mexico uh, sorry, through South America um, come through I don't remember if Mexico was on the list or not but South America, travel through South America go through Europe, uh, come back through Asia and then back to Australia you know, we wanted to have one year of endless summer and just travel together and show the boys the world uh, nobody knew about that. We really hardly talked to anyone about that. It was just Rob and I who had that. And I didn't even tell the boys, not even in hindsight, because, you know, what, what is the price of that, telling them, oh, you know, that and I wanted to take you travelling for a year. I thought, no, I'm going to tell them what I can do, not what we can't do anymore. And that's what started it, the whole, there's no way I could homeschool two boys on my own while grieving and travelling the world. No way. So I literally just started. Okay, what what can I do? And I thought two months is a good time frame to really get a break, really step away. And which are the countries that I can travel to with the boys on my own? Definitely not South America, which I still wanted to do, but that'll come another day. Um, but yeah, I knew that I wanted to go to uh, La Palma, uh, Canarian Islands, Canary Islands, because my godfather had migrated t- to la palma when i went to australia and i had never had the chance to visit him because when we went back to austria to visit friends and family it would have been another five hour flight and you don't do that you know it's just that that little bit too far out of the way and i'm like i'm coming to visit you and he is so close to my heart he i stayed with him for nine days um he has a you know he built a couple of guest houses there we had our own little house to ourselves and we had nine days with him which was absolutely beautiful but I had this gap he said I've only got this one week where there's no guests in there I'm gonna book it out for you you can come with your boys we'll look after you but there was this one week before I'm like I want to leave here I, I can't wait till then my heart was ready to go I needed to go so I still remember standing at the at a travel agency and she had this massive world map on on her wall there. And I went like, okay, this is La Palma, this is Australia. It's like, Maldives, we're going to the Maldives. And I'm like, woohoo, this is so cool. So I went like roughly in the middle. And I always had this dream. I was in the Maldives um, when I was 25. And I remember being so blown away by thinking, one day I'll come back and I want to stay in an water bungalow. And that's what we did. So we started off the trip with a week in an overwater bungalow, in a Maldives, snorkeling, and just had our own private little pool. And it was just absolute paradise. And still, when I asked, where would you ever go back? They are like, Maldives. <laughs> that's the best thing, yeah. It's just brilliant, yeah. And then we had Europe, and we went to Paris. Flynn wanted to go to Paris and eat escargot in Paris. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> I honestly, I have to tell you this is the funniest story because I I thought no way in hell would I ever, ever, ever eat escargot. It's disgusting beyond measure. It's, I know some people will disagree, but it's this mind over matter food, you know, it's like no way that I wanted to eat it. And then Flynn ordered, like he waited till the last day and he ordered his, you know, half a dozen of escargot. That's a minimum order that you have to have. He wanted to just taste it. And we sat in this little cafe in France with the typical arrogant waiter and I'm scraping my little bit of French together to order this. And, and he's poking his fork around and I'm thinking, just smile and wave, just smile and wave. And he's like, do you want to try it with me, mom? And I was like, God, no, it's like, no way. And his response was, Dad would have tried it with me. Oh, <laughs> somebody <laughs> take the knife out of my back. I knew in that moment I had to try it. There's no way around. I knew in that moment I had to try it. And the funniest part was that even my little one tried it, whose Mr. Absolute Fancy Pants would not try anything, and you can't force him. You can't bribe him. He, he can't. If he says no, it's no. But without a word, he was like, yeah, I'll have a to go too. I'm like, so it became this very disgusting, very funny, very bonding moment for us that we still talk about. It was, that was our escal story.
0: Amazing. And how were they? Were they as bad as you thought they were going to be?
1: I'd never, ever, ever tried again. Thank you. <laughs> it's just the consistency. It's the mind over matter thing. But knowing what I'm eating, I'm like, no, it's yeah, I'm a previous vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for 20 years of my life because of animals. I'm like, you know, this is a really new level of eating animals for me. Where it's like, no, and it was it was good. It was <laughs> oh, really good.
0: Do you know what though? Well done, well done, and and what an amazing thing to do. For your boys. What what's your view then on the whole? I know what my view is and I, I share it quite yeah. openly. But what's your view on the don't make any big decisions or do anything you, you know in the first twelve months?
1: I think there's two sides to the story. I mean, when I look at my own life, like I've broken a rule three times, you know, I've I've written a book, I've traveled around the world and I've started a global movement, uh, you know, nine months after Rob passed. So that all happened within the first one year mark. And All three of those were things where I'm like, well, the book, of course, you could say maybe one day I regret it, no questions asked, but there was so much love in the book, so why wouldn't I share it? The trip around the world, I don't think you can ever really regret traveling. I don't know, unless you have a really, really bad experience, which we luckily didn't have. The movement, honestly, I could have closed it down any stage if it would have been too hard for me or too confronting or too whatever, but it turned out the complete opposite. It's all I do. It's what I do for a living these days and To me, it it has become such an amazing purpose to help people heal for a living. This is incredible. You know, it's it's so much more than a job for me. It's my absolute lifeblood, my heart, my everything has gone into this. And yeah, for me, it is an absolute blessing. I could not imagine being in any other job at the moment. So, but then there is the other thing where it comes to, selling their house because it's too confronting, that is a step that you can't really undo or it will cost you a lot of money or it's very unlikely. Those people probably don't want to sell that house again because, you know, they bought it for a reason. So big things like that, selling a car, selling a house, selling something where you know that step can't be undone, that I would be a bit more careful with. And some people are like, Clothes, for example, you know, I had to sell all her clothes on the day or his clothes or whatever because I just could not. Other people hold on to it forever. Some people can't stand having it in their house. I think the trickiest part, you would probably agree with that, the trickiest part is to find that balance between just trust your gut instinct and go for it or, hey, yes. just sit with it and take a moment to breathe here, you know. Yeah. It's, You're so right. It's something that is tricky, but really important to learn. When is it gut instinct, and when are you just reacting? You know. Yeah, and I
0: know some people that have sold their houses in the first twelve months, and it's been the best thing they ever did. It's yeah. you know, it was it was in it was in it's an instinct. You know, mm-hmm. like you say, it wasn't maybe that they were trying to escape the pain or you know blocking themselves from something. It was a, a genuine. I I know this is right. I know this is the right time. But you're right. You, you know, it's just. It's a considered decision, isn't it, rather than a a kind of reaction to an, an emotion, as it were. Um, but in, you know, I think it's amazing what you've done there. So tell us, then, Marie, you you've obviously done amazing things, and you've started this this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like?
1: How how are you supporting people? Yeah. So that movement, or the idea for the movement, was actually born in Vienna on my trip around the world. And uh, being from Vienna, I was sitting in my previous apartment that my mom moved into when I left, and I had this moment. It was about seven months into Rob's passing, and I had this moment of reminiscing. You know, when you when you sit there in your old hometown, and you're like. You know, this really overwhelming sense of I cannot believe what happened the last seven months and also how far we have come as a family of three. And then I thought of the book and how it became an Amazon number one bestseller and ranked in the top 100. And I was like going through this and all of a sudden it hit me. I I still remember the moment where I sat on the bed and it hit me and I thought, I've got something the world needs. There's hope, there's healing, there's happiness. People need that. And that's when I had this idea, I need to do something with that. I need to create like a tribe, a movement around this. And I reached out to a mentor that specializes in that. And uh, I had previously interviewed him for my, my previous coaching business. And I just reached out to him and said, Mark, this is what happened since we last spoke. It was like one and a half years prior. And, um, and you know, I, I need your help with this. And he said, yeah, let's catch up when you come back. I said, cool. So I made an appointment there. And then we arranged to meet like, I don't know, 10 days after I came back from my trip around the world. And two weeks later, three weeks later, I sat in his first um you know he had like a workshop that day and recorded my welcome video for the group and I was like I cannot believe I'm doing this you know and then um 19th of March 19 I still remember I'm all about numbers I opened the doors to loving love after loss and within weeks with hundreds of people come in and you know what it's like you know you started off and then all of a sudden at, at some stage the growth is just exponential and and when you are authentic and true to yourself and just live from your own experience like you do, people are drawn to that. People come in because people, as you said before, Karen, people want to heal. Deep down, we all have this longing for healing, for happiness, for joy in our lives, for love in our lives. And that is just really something that we offer quite freely in our group. There's so much love and support in there. I've Created healing journeys for people in their healing programs. I don't do the programs anymore, but my biggest one that I focus on now is the retreat because that's where the really deepest transformation happens. Three and a half days are such an incredible turnaround for people. It really people do come in with 180 degrees different view, and uh, I've got a hundred percent success rate with these retreats. People do come out completely different that their, their perspective their outlook on life is just wow there's a life beyond grief it's incredible you know and uh I love that i love this so much it's my absolute passion i love that
0: so do you is this for people like grieving any loss or do you do you find you attract more widows and, and widowers because of your story
1: because of my story i attract a lot of widows and widowers um but i We really have seen a shift. People do come in with having lost their parents, having lost their children, having lost um, very close people to them. However, where I draw the line is I don't accept people into the group for pet loss. and i I totally appreciate that for some people, uh, it can feel just like having lost a family member because some people just don't have children or don't have any living relatives anymore and their pet means the world to them. Mm -hmm. But I also understand when you look at the other perspective, when let's say you have a mom in there who's lost her only child and then somebody comes in and I'm, I'm, I know I'm overdoing it here now, but somebody's coming in and grieving their poodle. Then, you know, how can you have those two people sitting next to each other uh, in a retreat? That that's impossible to me. Like for that person, it might feel the same, but for that person, it certainly feels different. So I really want to honour those grieving human beings rather than mm. um, animals. Yeah. And I always say there are grief groups for that too. And I'd really, you know, carefully divide them into that direction. Yeah.
0: You're right, th- there is. And, you know, th- th- it's, that's really why I... I- I just serve widows, um, yeah. to be honest, because I think even in in human losses, that they are incredibly different, aren't yeah. they, um, and, and the people's experience. But even even I'm noticing that in widowhood, that mm. you know, everyone's lived experience is, is different. Everybody's circumstances are, are different. And, you know, we all go through it. And that's grief, isn't it? It's, mm. it's very unique to you. It's yeah. very individual to you. We will all do it differently. There's no right or wrong way but to be able to hold space for people Mm. I mean I'm doing my first retreats as you know this this year and I'm doing them here in in the UK one in May and one in July and I'm so excited to step into this space of you know Zoom is an amazing thing it really I mean we wouldn't be having this conversation now and I love it in my grief, grief groups that I run over Zoom they are so powerful However, it's next level, isn't it? Bringing people together in person in a safe space. Nothing
1: beats the personal connection and the hug. Yes, the hug. I'm such a hugger. I know. Yes.
0: So lovely. That's what we all need. <laughs> <laughs> so lovely, a big hug. Yeah. So obviously, these people come to you for for three days. Do you do you hold them around Australia, or are they always mm-hmm. around Sydney, where where you live?
1: Yeah. So so far, interesting enough, it always tended to be in the same direction not even deliberately but that's how they popped up for me and I I totally believe in those uh, you know in divine guidance around that so we've been um holding them Central Coast, Central Coast, Central Coast, Central Coast, Central Coast and now we started Hunter Valley. So it's all roughly like an hour, an hour and a half north of Sydney and I love it because it's not directly in the centre. I need nature for what I do. I love being surrounded by nature because I'm a big believer and Mother Nature is one of our biggest healers that we don't utilise enough. So it's beautiful. I I always um, I always said I want a little bit of luxury for my guests too so I do want them to have the nice... You know, um, location, the nice hotel, the nice food, whatever there is. Like we've, we've had it in Airbnbs that was really big and luxurious. And then we had like now is the first time we're actually going to a hotel that is retreat based. So they are very much experienced in that, which I love because now I don't have to worry about catering anymore. So, you know, it's all, all in one. And so it's, it's a new experience to do it in a hotel. So I am quite curious to see how it feels different. But uh, I just wanted to add one more thing that I picked up from what you said, and I love that you brought this up because the differences, even though we are all widows or even though one might be a grieving mom and one might be you know, grieving daughter or whatever, there are differences even if the loss is classified the same as in a child loss, a parent loss, a husband loss, whatever the loss is. One thing I have learned myself in grief is that comparison doesn't help us heal it doesn't help us it does not you know it just keeps us stuck and in so many grief groups when you come in you see these comparison battles at their finest whose husband was younger who had more kids whose kids were younger who never had the chance to have kids and I'm like what are you guys doing you need to learn to hold space for each other and just be there for each other and listen because that's what we need the most, somebody to listen to us who actually understands rather than going, oh, my husband was younger, Oh, my husband passed quicker, ooh, I had my husband longer so I had the chance to say goodbye. I'm like, oh, this is not helping us, you know. And the other thing I learned through a really, really beautiful person in our movement, uh, Christopher Kruber, he's one of our moderators, uh, he has lost his son to suicide. And up until I met Chris, I had the assumption that there is no worse loss than losing a child until I met Chris. And he was the one who turned it around for me, which I thought was incredibly impressive being a grieving parent of a child that he has lost. And he said the same thing to me that I just said before, comparison does not help us heal. And who am I to say that my loss is worse than yours? We have all experienced a loss of a person that has cut into our hearts so deeply that we need to focus on healing that rather than saying, this is not natural or this shouldn't be like that or that shouldn't be like, who are we to say how it should or shouldn't be? We are not the creator, no matter what your spiritual belief is, you know, we are not making the rules who is supposed to live for how long. So my spiritual background is I believe in soul contracts. I actually believe that Rob and I have chosen this journey together. And it took me a long time to talk about that openly because I thought, oh, my God, you know, I could offend people. People would say, uh, you know, this is against my beliefs. How dare you? People, you know, I went into this judgment and to fear again. And as soon as I stepped out of that and said, well, I'm not telling you how to believe or how to grieve or whatever. I'm just sharing what works for me. And those who are drawn to that, they will join us. And those who are not, that's fine. And people can still find their healing even if they might have a different spiritual belief. But I stopped saying that actually, that there is no worse loss than child loss because it depends on so many different factors, our beliefs, our upbringing, our spiritual beliefs, our relationship, our mindset at the time, our own spiritual growth, uh, the circumstances. There are so many factors you can't just say it's worse or easier. There is, there's not easy. There's just your journey, nothing else. And those who you meet along the journey, the most beautiful thing you can do for them is hold space and not compare or not judge or not label what is worse and what not. We're really. not meant to do that. It's not helpful.
0: We're not. And I love that. I think that's it's incredibly powerful. And it's a conversation I have a lot because I think naturally, as as humans we we struggle with the acceptance of our own reality and there's an inherent need within us almost to look at other people's situations and either minimize and or diminish what we've experienced or minimize or diminish what they've experienced almost creating a hierarchy and you know what i always say to people is You know, like you say, hold space for others, listen to others, circumstances, situations, Mm -hmm. life experiences, but don't judge. Like, Take your own experience, accept that that we have no control. To your point, we have absolutely no control over how long any of us are are here for and... You know, it's very much focusing on what you can control, not not what you can't. Yeah, um, absolutely, I love it. Yeah, and and just look for the good in your own story. Yeah, but, you know, so many people will say, "Oh, well, it's 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 easier for me because I haven't got children, so I haven't got to focus on 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 you know." supporting my children through their grief I can just do me I don't know how you do it with children then somebody else with children will say oh thank God I've got kids I don't know how you do it without children because they and it's like just stop just stop with the compare whether you've got children you haven't got children they're older they yeah just find your good find your good and and go this is my situation and this is what I'm grateful for in it this is what feels good to me and and recognize that and allow yourself to feel that yeah without making it a comparison but we do it's it it's just naturally it's like judgment isn't
1: it in criticism it you know it's i love that you said it because you just wrote about that in your newsletter under judgment i read that and i'm like yeah it's so true it is so true we we are human beings we do judge it's just in our nature yes yet there is also that okay what can i learn from that what can i do differently you know how would it actually be more helpful and um, i think that's a beautiful approach.
0: Yeah, I think I just try and and look at everything that I do, that I think, um, my behaviours, and and rather than judge and criticise myself or others, like what's what's coming up in me, what's that bringing up in me, and why am I behaving that way, why am I feeling that way? It's all information, um, and it can really help us discover about ourselves. However, you know, it's remembering that for others as well, isn't it? They're they're going through their journey, and and there's stuff going on for them, and. And that's why they're in the position they find themselves in and that's why they're doing what they're doing and some of us will choose to take these experiences and learn from them and grow from them because there's an opportunity in everything there is and that's hard to hear you know
1: embrace your triggers yeah. mm.
0: if you're in the very early raw days of your grief you know hearing us sitting here saying there's opportunity in that for something you're going to probably be screaming at us
1: Through your device. Yeah, don't listen. If you're in your early stages, do not listen. And I get it, I
0: get it. But I think recognize that that's not your truth now. However, in time, it could become your truth and there might be something in this that will allow you to discover parts of you that are actually quite beautiful when you're ready. This
1: this in it's always so powerful what you just said, Karen, allow me to highlight that because it's one of my favourite parts. You know, when you said this is not your truth now, this is one of the many, many, many reframes that I teach at at the retreats, for example, where we, we learn to, when there's a negative experience, emotion, anything, mindset, thought, than to add just those tiny little two words, they're so powerful, right now. I'm not coping with my life right now. It kind of, you know, takes the edge out of it. It takes the heaviness out of it. It makes you understand that this too shall pass, that this is temporary and it will pass. It will, you, you will get through this. You will get through this. So for those who are in the really early stages and go like, oh my God, what are you guys on about? You know, stop talking. I can't listen to you. Just know that whatever you're feeling right now, right now, it is temporary and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I can promise you that and Karen is definitely on my side with that. Like it's just, yeah, i just want to know this. There is a way through it. Me healing is possible really
0: important to know it is and and that's the overriding message isn't it you you know you can learn to to love life again after loss and create something beautiful and that doesn't take away your grief or your love for your person that comes with you. you you know you do grow around it you learn to live with it alongside it and our our people our person they live on within us. They've shaped who we are. They've given us so much. And and what is that for you? you? You know, they rob continues to influence you and the choices you make, and therefore helps the people you're helping, and that lives on in in others. And it, I think that's such a, a lovely thing. One of my one of my lovely clients sent me a message just how she'd really realised how much of an impact Simon had had on my life and how he'd shaped my outlook, my mm. choices, my decisions, who I've become in that. And then how that in turn is influencing others. So how, you know, Simon's had an impact on me. And I'm, and I just think we we can all create that ripple effect. We can all mm-hmm. keep, you know, continue to share our person, what they stood for. So that their, their light continues to to shine. And yes, it's not in the way you'd want it to be, but what way what way can you make it something that feels good for you that's within your control and i think it is it's but we've all got to you know you talked about spirituality and you know the belief systems we have I don't know. You know, I think it's wonderful if you have one, whatever that looks like. If it's, if you have a belief system that brings you some comfort, that helps you feel connected to your person, that helps you reconnect with life and find your way forward. Why would I take that off you? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, there's no right or wrong here. It's, it's just different people will have different belief systems and, and share them, talk about them, because that helps other people explore their belief systems and maybe look at things in a different way. But, you know, we've all got to find what feels good for us. And I think that's a really difficult thing because we're all so worried about what everyone else is thinking and doing and are we doing it right? And and, and are we capable? Are we worthy? And yes, 100%. So Marie, what I mean, I could honestly, I don't want to stop talking to you, but I'm conscious of time and You know, I just think we are so aligned in in our thinking, in our mission, in our passion, in what we want to share with the world. You know, you talk about the movement that you're creating globally, and you know, I very much feel like I'm I'm doing something very similar. Oh, absolutely! (laughs) One day we get to meet, Marie. I think it would it would be wonderful if.
1: I'm over to Vienna, when in June. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to Austria in June, July, half afterwards. Love
0: Oh, I've never been to <laughs> Vienna. Knows? Maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Thank you. Thank you so much. How do people find you, Marie? And, and actually, are you able to share this article that you're talking about? Do you, Ooh, is there yeah. a link that, you, that I can put in the show notes? Because I'd like to read it.
1: Um, I will share it with you because I actually titled it, I can't remember what the original title was. It was something about widowhood is, I can't remember what the word was. And I retitled it as well. And I called it, Widowhood is Reinvention. And I absolutely love that because it's this whole our whole identity changes. You know, who am I after loss? And that's what I packed in there when I rewrote everything. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely find a way to share it with you. Yeah, absolutely. I love that.
0: I love. I'd love to read it. and I'd love for everyone else to to have the opportunity to read it as well because it sounds powerful. It sounds like a, a, a real mindset shift, which mm, is a it beautiful is, thing. Very much. Yeah. Um, so I'll share that I'll share the links to your books um, if you share those with me as well and which I think I've already got actually but how is how do people best find you obviously I again I'll pop your your website links and everything in in the show notes but your where where's the best place to find you Marie
1: So when people if people do uh, want to join our movement I think the easiest way is to find the the Facebook group called Loving Love After Loss or when you go on my website mariealessi.com You find all the links. You find the links to my book, to my uh, movement, to Instagram if you want to follow us there, to the retreat, to whatever you want to find, to our podcast. If you share the link with me, I'll put it on there as well. So there's the media section on there. Uh, There's really literally everything we offer we do um, is on the website. So I think it's the easiest to just share the website because you'll find everything on there.
0: And just finally... Are you loving life after
1: loss? I'm freaking loving it. I absolutely am. It really like honestly, I have my days as well where you know, where I have a dip and um, but to me, I think to wrap this whole up, everything up that we talk about today, I I am not believing that grief will stay with me forever. I treat grief like a visitor, not like a permanent resident. so it does come in every now and then. And when it does, I embrace it. I invite her to sit with me over a cup of tea or in a hot bath and we sob together and we cry and hug. And then I ask grief to leave again and go back to my happy life. And that's that's how I handle grief. I really literally imagine like I, I had this thing if grief was a person, you know, and I've learned to embrace it. And when it comes, I see it as a beautiful memory and it brings back that sadness to not have that anymore but then it also brings the awareness of what else I have created through this so there's a bit of this, you know, I go through my journeys with it and it's fine and I've really learned to embrace these visits and to embrace triggers and to get the beauty and the lessons and the gifts from it and as you called it the opportunities in that, I really love that I really love that and yeah I'm loving love. it's beautiful
0: (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. It's such, it is a gift. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate it. Oh, bless you, Marie. I will look forward to hopefully doing this again sometime, but thank you for sharing with us today. It's been wonderful.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Widow Podcast with me, Karen Sutton. If you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief, come and join my free Facebook group, Widowed and Rising, and make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Widow Podcast.